It's good, isn't it, sharing all this stuff? Hearing what's going on? Love it. It's good. It's good. Well, this morning, um, we're kind of looking at another one of our values, one of our key core values. Um, We've got seven of them in total, and they're the things that, according to our website, define us. They're the things that set us apart. I'm pretty sure, though, well, let's do a quick poll, shall we? Hands up here who reckons that they could name all seven straight off. Yeah, even my hand's not up, and I've been writing a series on it. But you see, it's important that every now and then we revisit these things, because I said a few weeks ago that they're, they're fairly generic statements. They should apply to every single church, because there shouldn't be anything, um, anything in there that, that surprises us or shocks us. But at the same time, every now and then we should go back and just remind ourselves so that we make sure that they're not a generic series of statements, and that they are actually applicable and specific and reflective of us as a church. So with that in mind, today we are looking at sharing life. Sharing life. And there's a passage that we're going to look at, and it's kind of the go-to passage for this sort of thing. I reckon most of you, before I even say it, will be thinking, I know where he's going, and you'll be absolutely right. Because we're looking at the book of Acts, and um, we've been looking at the early church, and we've been Deciding what can we learn from the experiences of the early church, not to hold them up as an example of perfect church because they were anything but, but also making sure that as we sift through what we're told about the early church, we recognize the things that actually we can hold on to, the things that are good and are important for us to learn. And so in Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 42, we read a very famous passage called The Fellowship of the Believers. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 42. We read this. This is talking about the, the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I love that passage. It's such a, a wonderful picture of church. It kind of it sifts out the negativity. And there would have been some. There would, of course, have been some, some doubters. There would have been critics. There would have been voices from the outside and probably the inside knocking people and, and saying that we're not doing it right, we're not doing it well enough. There would have been people on the outside saying, it's just one of these new radical movements, people have got a bit overexcited and it'll all calm down pretty soon. But we don't get any of that here. Luke recalls the good stuff, the best stuff. 
This isn't rose-tinted spectacles. What he's doing is he's giving us a picture of what they were trying to achieve. And what they're trying to achieve is, is not far off what we try to achieve today. A picture of a church that is unified, that has a common purpose, that is supportive and loving and full of grace. Where God is is working amongst the people in such a clear and obvious way that they see his hand working day after day. I'd like to draw out five key points from this passage for us to consider. Five key points which perhaps for us today at NCBC we can be challenged on and we can learn And in essence, they're the five main areas that Luke focuses on in this passage. So first of all, verses 42 and 43. The people devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That word devoted... I love that word. It means that people came together, not when it was convenient, not when it worked for them, not when working hours allowed. They were devoted. This was a priority. This was the one thing in their daily diary that was not compromised, that was not pushed out by anything else. They were utterly devoted to being together. Luke In his gospel and in the book of Acts, it's surprising when you go through and you look for the number of times, that, especially in his gospel, where where Jesus is presented eating, having a meal, sitting at table. It's surprising because Luke actually presents Jesus in a meal situation more than any other gospel writer. Food was really important. And in fact, in the book of Acts, right at the beginning... We're told that um, the, um, the apostles were, they, they, they came together right at the beginning of the book of Acts. We're told the apostles returned to Jerusalem, this is after the ascension, from the hill called the Mount of Olives, as Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying together. Now, I found out this week that the, the literal translation of the phrase staying together is sharing the salt. They were sharing the salt together. And I love that, because that means that, I mean, salt was a precious commodity. It was, it was um, used to, to preserve and to flavour food. They were sharing the salt together. Luke uses that phrase to demonstrate the closeness and the unity, the togetherness of the apostles. They were sharing the salt. And this theme is kind of taken up in by Paul. Paul adopts this, this, this mentality of, of food being, being absolutely vital to, um, to, to what it means to be church. So much so that when he's, when he's talking to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, 
Paul addresses a case of a man who is, um, he says, there's sexual immorality among you, of a kind even the pagans don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Not a pleasant subject. You might think, well, what's that got to do with food? But Paul actually goes on and says, um, uh, you should have put him out of your fellowship. Um, You shouldn't tolerate this. He says he should be excluded. To the point where, at the end of his concluding statement, you should not even eat with such people. Today, in prisons, I think I'm right in saying that one of the worst punishments that someone can get is solitary confinement. To be taken away, to be excluded, to be deprived of, of interaction of any sort. And of course, the, the, the ultimate interaction is the, the act of sharing food. You go back in history and, and food has always been, you know, we celebrate with a banquet. Food is important. At Christmas time or at Easter, we bring family together and have a big meal. Why? Because food is important. Coming together is important. It was important to Luke, it was important to Paul. And it was important to the early church. They were devoted to each other. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Fellowship is so important for any church. Any church that says, well, we're too, too much of the social side of things. No. no, no, it's not social, it's fellowship. Social is just having a laugh, going out not really thinking. Fellowship is intentional. I go to a fellowship event in my church because I want to get to know the people better. I don't care whether it's an event that I want to do or not. I do it because it's the people. The people that I love are going to be there and I want to get to know them better. That's fellowship. So in the early church, we see, we see leadership. The first principle is leadership. We're coming on to fellowship. I've got ahead of myself. The first one is leadership. The people were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And so they regularly received teaching from the apostles. It is important that we have teaching on a regular basis. That may be from the front on a Sunday. That may be in house groups. That may be in prayer meetings. That may be at the evening service or at encounter. That may be in a conversation that takes place between a couple of people where one shares something with another. You never guess what I read in my devotional today. You never guess what God's done for me. Teaching should be something which we are constantly looking for opportunities to do. And to receive as well. I regularly sit in my office during the week and listen to sermons from other churches because I need teaching, same as anybody else. And the minute that any one of us decide that we don't need that anymore is the minute that we shut shut a door and suddenly we don't let God in. The early church were devoted to teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, is that food and to prayer. Prayer is so important. Everything we do should be underpinned, under, under, um, what was it? Undergirded, thank you, yep, that's, by prayer. (laughs) Prayer is absolutely vital to what we are, to what we do. And what was the response? Well, 
God's response to this. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Now, you might say, okay, yep, I don't disagree with what you said in the first bit, but where are the signs? Where are the wonders? You know, how, how are we going to, be, going to be struck by awe at what's going on around us? I don't see it. Well, actually, I do. There's been one really, really recently which has made me stand back and with a sense of awe say, wow, God, thank you. And I'll tell you what it is. We had um, a really awkward sermon from my point of view back just before Easter, the week before Easter, where we spoke about money. We spoke about giving. And I had to stand here and say that as a church, we're robbing God. That's not a comfortable thing for a minister to say to a church. You were very, very graceful and uh, gracious, I should say, and, um, and were lovely, and I really appreciate that. Um, but halfway through that sermon, we stopped, and we had a prayer of repentance. And on the back of that sermon, there's been an encouraging response. There's still some way to go, but there's been an encouraging response, and I'm really grateful for that. And for me, there is an act that God has performed, which I just want to share with you, and it, we can easily put it down to coincidence. We can, we can put it to one side. We can, we can pass it off as something else. But for me, it's no coincidence that after a prayer of repentance and a sermon where we have come before God and we have, we have committed to, to um, changing the situation in which we find ourselves, God has responded. And this is how he responded. Within about a week of that sermon, we found a new energy provider. And that energy provider has given us cheaper rates to such an extent that it's going to make a very significant difference to our budget deficit for the next 12 months. Now, I'm not saying we're out of the woods. I'm not saying you can go home and cancel direct debits and say, hey, it's okay, we're fine. We're not in that position. We're not in that position at all. We still need giving. We still need people to be, to be doing that. But what I am saying is that we can, we can give knowing that God does, does respond when we gather together, when we devote ourselves, when we are honest, when we say, Lord, we, we, ask for your, we ask for your forgiveness, we repent, we need to change. When we start that process, when we do that, surprise, surprise, God hears our prayers and God responds. When we put God at the centre of what we're doing, then suddenly these coincidences happen. Why? Because there's no such thing as a coincidence. It's God. God is working. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. I am filled by, with awe by what God's done. And we should all be celebrating that. We should all be recognising that God has, has done that. That is a wonderful thing. It's no coincidence. The early church, we're told in this passage as well, evangelism. As they prayed to God, Praise God and enjoyed the favour of all people. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Evangelism should be something that, that we seek to do. Now, that doesn't involve going out on a street corner and shouting, you turn or burn and you're all going to hell. That sort of evangelism doesn't work. There may have been a day when it did, but it doesn't work these days. It can do, of course. God can use that. But most people just walk straight on by. In this day and age, the best form of evangelism is relational. 
is getting to know people, walking alongside them, earning the, the opportunity. Once we've earned their, their respect and their, their ear, the opportunity to say, let me tell you about my God. Let me share my faith. Let me tell you about my church. Let me talk to you about Jesus. Sometimes with evangelism, it can be a really terrifying thing, and we can, we can shy away from it a bit. I get that. It's not an easy thing to do. When I used to work up in the city, there was, um, I changed jobs, and um, it was at a time when I sort of got comfortable with calling myself a Christian and with letting everyone know rather than just my Sunday morning church. And um, so in an interview, I've been quite open about my faith. And um, uh, I started working for this firm, and it was evident that I, was, I felt like the only Christian in the office. It was, it was a, um, a very immoral team. They were, they were great fun, but um, some of the stuff they got up to just, um, just wasn't right. But I remember the, uh, my, one of my first, I think it was the end of my first week, we went out for, um, for some drinks as a team, and we were sitting there, and um, someone said, so you, um, you're, a, you're a Christian? I said, yeah, yeah, I am. Um, what does that mean? And so I started explaining. I, I said, well, I, you know, for me, I, started, I did an alpha course because I thought it was all nonsense, um, same as most people, and they all nodded. And I said, but I did the alpha course, and I... I learned more and more and more about Jesus and more and more and more about the evidence there is for Jesus. And I got to the end of that course and I totally changed my mind. You know, it's the more, you, more evidence you look at, the more you, you consider Jesus, the claims of Jesus, the more you read about Jesus, the more you come to realize that I, can't, I just can't logically argue this. And I said, I, I defy you, I challenge you. If you, you, know, if you, don't, um, if you, if you don't believe, then why don't you believe? Is it because you've looked at all the evidence and come to your own conclusion? And they were all dismissing me. And then there was this, um, this American, uh, sorry, Canadian guy. Don't get those two mixed up. Um, there was this Canadian guy called Chad. Chad, was a, he was a lovely guy. Got on really well with him. And um, uh, this is where I wish I could do accents. I'm not going to try the accent because whatever accent I try and do, I just end up sounding racist. It's not, it's not good. Um, so... Um, I'm just going to do it in my normal accent, but imagine the big Canadian voice. Um, he suddenly said, now I've been talking up to this point, and I've been doing the thing that so many of us tend to do. I, the, my conversation had been, well, the thing is, right, if you actually look into the evidence for Jesus, then what you find is that when you go to church, it's, and I was lowering my voice, and I don't know why, but it was just something I didn't feel confident in talking loudly and openly about Jesus. The name of Jesus didn't come flowing at the right volume as everything else did from my, from my lips. And Chad came in and he said, no, Tom's right. You look into Jesus. Jesus, Jesus has more evidence than, than you would believe. There is so much. And he started listing off all the different types of evidence and stuff. And I, and I said to him, so what, and it, what, what about you? you know, where's this come from? And he said, well, I did my degree in theology. He said, I'm a Christian. I go, I, I go to church when I can. And he was suddenly this big, brazen character standing there in this bar, backing me up. And it felt brilliant. And I thought, oh, fantastic. And from that day on, despite all the things that went on in that, in that team and that office, which, which really weren't good, um, I went there knowing that I wasn't on my own. You see, having the opportunity to talk about our faith, it can lead others to faith. But it can also give other people a voice 
someone else to say, yeah, actually, I, I back you up. I agree with what you're saying. If we're outspoken about our faith, it gives other Christians license to be outspoken. It's so important. It's so important. But if you're sitting there thinking, I'm not a natural evangelist. It doesn't, I just can't, I've tried and I just stumble and it's just not my thing. Don't beat yourself up about that. Don't feel that you're in any way lacking. Last week, for the first time in many, many, many years, I did a park run. I was cajoled into it. And um, I thought, I'll go along. And I thought, well, at the end of the day, whether I want to do the run or not, there's a massive group of people, and there's going to be opportunity to talk to people. And I might be able to share about my faith, about my church. Great. So I went along and I turned up and uh, it was a lovely morning and the run started and after about, after about two kilometres I thought, man, I'm closer to meeting Jesus than I am just talking about him. <laughs> you know, my life was flashing before my eyes. And so I, 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 didn't, I didn't actually manage to have a single conversation because the power of speech was way beyond me. But, but... Um, I finished, I finished um, the run and, and got home and we, were, we went back. I was preaching at um, our sending church last week back in Essex. Brilliant uh, to be back there and to see, see people. Um, but on the Saturday night, I met up with a friend of mine and we went back to um, the little village pub in the village where I was brought up and met a few people I hadn't seen for a long time. And it was a lovely evening, really, really good. And so we're sitting there in an axe head and there was a guy who I, I recognised. I used to know him years ago. And he recognised me, and it was one of those where you think, uh, sort of recognise oh yeah, I remember you now, and we'd been to the same primary school and stuff. And um, uh, I, I was walking a bit stiffly, having had my first bout of exercise in a long time, and he said, you all right? And I said, ah, oh, yeah, I said, um, I did a park run this morning, it's the first one I've done for ages, and I'm just, all oh, my legs are stiffening up a bit. And he said, oh, I love park runs. I said, do you? Now, this guy, he um, doesn't have the physique of a runner, let's say. Um, and so I was, I was really surprised. And I, I said, oh, right, okay, you, you're regular at park runs. Yeah, yeah, I'm regular, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's great, it's brilliant. Oh, they're fantastic. Oh, you know, you should do them more. I said, oh, right. And um, anyway, the conversation went on. And I said, so... What sort of time do you run? He said, run? <laughs> You're joking, look at me. No, I volunteer, I'm one of the marshals. I go every week and I stand there. And he said, and I take a tambourine and I'm banging it as people go past and I'm encouraging and they all come past. I don't run it, I can't run it, look at me. But you see, what I'm saying is, if we come to church and we, we, we feel in some way inadequate because we're not an evangelist, then we're missing, we're missing what God's called us to be. Because park runs are brilliant events, they're amazing, but they do not run without volunteers turning up every week to stand at different parts of the course, banging a, a, a drum or playing music or just calling out words of encouragement as runners go by and sending them in the right direction. And it might be that you're called to, to, sort of, to marshal the evangelists and say, come on, keep going. You might be feeling like your legs are about to drop off, but keep going. You can do this. Keep going. And we need people that say to us keep going we need people that encourage and as a church just as any any sort of event like a park run it, it takes so much organization it takes so many different skill sets it's not just about the runners it's about the whole race itself and a church is no different evangelism can be an opportunity 
not just to share our faith, but to understand the faith of others, to share together, to tighten bonds that we would not even know existed before. It's not something to be afraid of. Fellowship, we've already spoken about. Fellowship is, is so important. I was so encouraged last summer when um, we had one Sunday where we didn't have a service here on the Sunday morning. Instead, we all went over to Eaton Park. And I'll be honest with you, I was thinking to myself, are people going to see it as a Sunday off? Are people going to go elsewhere? Is it really, is it going to work? And I was bowled over by the fact that we had so many people, a lot of people who, who don't even come to church on a regular Sunday, they'd gone to Eaton Park and we, we sat over, we took over a corner of the park and we played cricket and we played other games and we had food and it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant because God was there. It wasn't a Sunday off church, it was, a, it was church just taking place somewhere else. That was fantastic. And the more fellowship events we do, the more effective we become as a church community, the more versatile we become, the more we know each other, the closer we are to this group that we read about at the end of Acts chapter 2. It says all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Which sounds like a wonderful arrangement. And I've been in church meetings before where people have said, well, <laughs> let's all sell everything and share together and try to copy this. And they've been slightly tongue-in-cheek, I think. But um, that's one of the points where we need to stop and say, that didn't work. That didn't work. Go to Romans 15, and Paul has had to go around the Mediterranean to all the churches of the Gentiles, taking up a collection, taking up an offering to go back and to share with the church in Jerusalem. Because the model they adopted, it wasn't perfect. Which is why I say that we shouldn't hold the early church up as some sort of perfect church. It wasn't. But at the time, at this time, in this moment, it was right for them. Stewardship is something that we should take very seriously, making sure that we use our resources in the best way that we can. As an example of the love of Jesus, what better way to demonstrate that in the early church than to say, Do you know what, all this stuff I've got, I'm selling it, and you need, and you need, and you need, and you need. That's a powerful thing to do. That's an incredible thing to do. That was one of the driving factors that made the early church so different from the temple. The temple where you had to walk in and drop your pennies in the pot as you went. Suddenly, there was a group of people who were giving. Suddenly, the charity, the love, the generosity, the kindness of Jesus were being reflected in the actions of the people who followed him. This was part of the growth of the early church. As I say, it's not a model that we would adopt today, but certainly those attributes of kindness and generosity, a willingness to give, to be sacrificial, to support one another, that should be something at the very heart of our faith.
You see, when, when we're in those situations, when someone has got nothing, when someone is struggling, they suddenly recognize the small acts of kindness that may, they might have glossed over at another time in life. Sometimes we need to be deprived of the luxuries of life in order to appreciate the small things that God's doing around us. When we were at a Horsted Centre a couple of weeks ago, there was a climbing wall, and it was great seeing the kids climbing and learning how to use the grips and everything. And um, I was with the youth, and we got to this uh, climbing wall, and they all, they'd all climbed, and the zip wire, and it was all really good fun. And then one of the guys who was um, uh, running the activity, he looked at me and he said, have you climbed before? And I said, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I've climbed. And he said, you want a challenge? Now, one of the things I recognize in myself is that although I wouldn't say I'm a particularly competitive person, if, if, if a younger, fitter-looking guy says to me, do you want a challenge, then, yeah, bring it on. Even if I know that it's going to end badly, I still cannot bring myself to say, oh, no, 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 you're all right, mate, thanks. I can't do it. I always have to say, yeah, yeah, go on then. Anyway, he said, okay, right, um, you've got to climb that wall. Yep, no problem. He said, but you, you, you can only use the grips with your feet. With your hands, the only thing you're allowed to touch is the features. He could tell by my face that I didn't understand what a feature was. And um, he, said, look, he said, look at the wall. And he said, you see there's sort of these, these little marks in the, the, whatever the backing stuff was, the actual wall itself, rather than using the big grips that you can climb up, just used the little marks in there. And I looked at these things, and I could just about get my fingertips in there. And I thought, oh, Tom, how do you get yourself into these situations? You're going you're gonna to either have to back out the challenge and lose face in front of all the youth, or you've got to try and do this. And so I stood there, and I started doing it, and I started climbing, and suddenly what struck me was that there were, there were little handholds in the, the grooves and the lines which were at different angles and sometimes you found yourself really at a very odd angle. But if you were careful, if you concentrated, if you looked hard enough, you could see that every now and then there was a, there was a, a ripple in the, in, the, um, in the wall which you could just get a couple of fingertips to purchase on and that would allow you to move your next foothold and then you had to look for the next... And it took a long time. It was hard work. I could feel I had aches in places where I didn't even know I had things to ache the next day. But I did it. I got there. When we're deprived of the luxuries of life, it forces us to look for the tiny handholds. We're not used to reaching for the tiny handholds. We're used to being able to cling on to pretty big handholds to have our feet firmly on pretty solid grips. When we're deprived of these things, we suddenly realize that God has surrounded us with so many blessings, so many people that we can call on, so many, so many little grips that we can just, just about hold on to. And God's put all these things in our path. Even when we feel like we're about to fall apart, we're not. We are far from it because we have something that is unique in the world. We have a church. We have a church family. We have all of these people in this room and beyond who we can call on, 
whether it's prayer, whether it's food, whether it's support, whether it's getting a lift somewhere, whatever it might be. We have a church family. That is so special. That is so valuable. And our church family, just like the church family that we read about in Acts chapter 2, we should break bread in our homes and eat together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor of all the people. I really encourage you, us, as a church, to remember those words. It was so important to Luke because it was so important to Jesus himself to go into people's houses, to break bread, to share together, to eat together, to share together the the, the bread of life, our daily bread, whatever we want to call it. There is something spiritual at the heart of a meal between Christian people. The more we do that with with more and more people in the church, maybe there's someone sitting here who you think, "I, I barely even know them. Well, try and get around for a meal. Try and break bread with them, to share time with them, to share together with them, because there is something spiritual. To say to someone, I want to invite you and your family into my home because I want to know you. It's a wonderful thing. It seems that to Luke and later to Paul that it would have been a terrible thing, a terrible reflection on a church if that didn't happen. That culture of invitation, that culture of hospitality was missing. Just to finish up with, in next week we celebrate Pentecost. I'm excited about that. I've been looking at Acts 2 thinking, oh, there's Pentecost. Oh, no, no, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. But next week is Pentecost. I'm looking forward to that passage, looking forward to speaking about what it means to be spirit-led worshippers. But then after that, we move on to sharing faith. The other, another of one of our core values that we're also familiar with. And in sharing faith, we're going to talk about house groups. House groups are something which, which are really important. This small group fellowship, meeting up, sharing together, sharing our faith, learning more about Jesus. I'd like it if we could get to the end of the year and every single person in our church was in some way affiliated with a house group, whether it's going every week or every fortnight or whether it's just checking in every now and then. We've got a link. And Ed and Alice have very kindly agreed to, uh, to head up that initiative with Yvette's support as well. And over the summer, um, we're, going to be, uh, we're going to be reviewing house groups. We're going to be looking to have a sort of a, a relaunch in, in September, not to, not to stop everything that's going on at the moment and restart it, but just to look at the groups that maybe need a bit of support and see how we can support. Look at anyone who's looking to start a new group. Look at the needs of the church. So there's going to be more on this in a couple of weeks' time, but I just wanted to say that because I know a few of you have said to me recently, you know, we'd love to get into a house group. What's going on with house groups? Well, there is something happening with house groups. We want to make sure that we have a, 
that we have a process, that we do it properly, that we do it well, and that we do it in such a way that we can cater for everybody in the church as best we can to make sure that we are all part of a small group. Because sometimes in a big church, people can get a bit lost, and we don't want that. We want everybody to feel the fellowship and the closeness that we read about in, at the end of Acts chapter 2. So bear with us on that. But if you'd like to know more, please speak to, um, to Ed or Alice or Yvette or myself, and we would be very happy to, um, to answer any questions. But there'll be a bit more of that in a couple of weeks' time. But right now, the early church... They spent so much time together. There was a spirit of unity and grace that held them because they were so close to each other and they were so close to God. As a church, let's make sure that we stay or become even closer to God and to each other in the coming weeks. When people walk in that door, they should see a fabric of community that is unbreakable because it is held together by the strength of an unbreakable God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the church. We thank you, Lord, that together we can share life with all its ups and downs, with all its, all its problems and its privileges as well. And Father, as we look at the description of the first church, as we've looked at those verses this morning, Lord, there's so much that we can be reminded of. And Father, we pray that as we seek to, to emulate those positive points, you will, you will be our guide. You will show us what you want us to be. Lord, we know we don't always get things right. We know that sometimes we, we let you down. But Father, in those moments, may we learn. May we learn more and more about church, about what you want it to be, and about how we can serve you and serve each other, know you and know each other, share with you and share with each other in a way that pleases and honours you. Father, be our guide, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to close together with our final song of worship this morning. opened by focusing on the goodness of God. Let's uh, close on that note.
you are a good, good father. Lord, we see you working around us in so many ways and we thank you for your grace, for your blessings and for your presence in our lives. And Lord, as we go out into the world now, we pray that we will feel different having spent this time in your presence, having spent this time focusing on you. Father, change our hearts. Help us to see the path that you've set before us for our lives. And help us, Father, to to grow closer within our church, to grow closer to the people that we have around us this morning, to the people who perhaps aren't with us this morning, but who, who are part of our church. Father, help us all to tighten those bonds, to strengthen our unity, our friendships, the love that binds us together so that we can truly make a difference to the world, demonstrating the love of Jesus and the joy of being part of his church. So Father, bless us as we go out into the world now. Be with us whatever is in store for us this week. And bring us back safe, we pray, next time we gather to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please do join us for tea and coffee after the service and have a blessed week.